I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 12th. In this episode, the automotive market is moving on from sole reliance on the internal combustion engine. How fast is the transition to electric motors? Well, there's some question about that. The Power Up Expo conference is next week. AspenCore Global Co-Editor-in-Chief Balaji Ojo helped organize the conference. We'll be talking with him about it. Also, five years ago, Intel and Micron Technology captivated the world with tales of a brand new memory IC so extraordinary it might display some of the memory chips currently dominating the market. So, what happened? We've got the story of Optane Memory straight from Intel. The automotive market is at the beginning of its most important evolution in decades. The short-term focus is on adding driver-assist technology, adding capabilities to vehicles that will help humans become better drivers. Simultaneously, there is also work going on developing autonomous vehicles, taking humans out from behind the wheel almost entirely. What is sometimes lost in all the hoopla about driver-assist and autonomous driving is that more and more vehicles are running on electric power, either some of the time or all of the time. We recently read a new report that forecasts that 40% of all cars sold across the globe in 2027 will be electrified, rising to over 95% by 2050. The report was commissioned by processor developer ARM, which is naturally interested in the electrification of vehicles because that will drive demand for more of its products. International editor Junko Yoshida has been covering the automotive electronics market, and she felt the forecast sounded far too rosy. So she set up a chat with Chet Babla, the vice president at ARM, who's in charge of the company's automotive business. Here they are. I was a little bit surprised uh, to see that ARM went out of its way to commission market research firm, I think in this case, Strategy Analytics, to do this study. So let's explain what this study is about and why you did it. Yeah, the background to ARM commissioning this report, which is titled uh, The Second Dawn of Electrification, was that you know whilst ARM technology is shipped today in powertrain applications from silicon partners like ST and NXP, um, and the Nissan Leaf is a great example of an electric vehicle featuring ARM technology in the powertrain. What we noticed was that whilst there's many reports today talking about autonomous vehicles and the market numbers around that, there was hardly anything that we came across specifically looking at uh, powertrain. Um, and what we've noticed from our discussions, especially with OEMs and tier ones, is that there's a lot of disruption coming to this segment. So what we really wanted to do as a result of this report was to understand what are the trends, what are the numbers, what are the key innovations that ARM should be thinking about to ensure these future use cases and, and disruptions in powertrain um, could be met with the appropriate technology uh, deployment as well? Um, the other thing, of course, is that uh, what we discovered is the uh, powertrain silicon market is $2 billion a year, um, and that in- excludes the analog and power components. So it's actually a very interesting silicon market, and of course, ARM loves big silicon markets. So that was really the background to ARM commissioning this report. 
Great. All right. So, you know, I'm a very skeptical person. So when I read the, uh, you know, the top line of the report, I was uh, also a little shocked to see that really, you know, kind of rosy picture strategy analysts came up with on the, on the electrical vehicles. And I kind of, I thought it's begged the question, what evidence do they have to have this optimistic conclusion? Yeah, yeah. And it's a fair point to raise, really. And then perhaps we should have had our friend Strategy Analytics here as well to, to talk through some of their numbers. So, you know, but while we can look at and, and debate the absolute numbers that we see here, whether it's in terms of vehicle volumes or in timelines of electrification, um, you know, one of the things that we're definitely seeing as we talk to OEMs in tier ones is that there's a definite trend for um, electrification um, happening in the industry. You know, when I talk to the OEMs, you know, one of the things we're hearing from them is they're not reducing their investments in in electrification. And uh, perhaps we should also, um, you know, differentiate between types of electric powertrain as well. There's mild electrified powertrains, there's plug-in, there's full hybrid, and then there's a battery electric uh, vehicles as well. And I think maybe people are thinking, going straight to that end point, steady state of battery electric. And actually there is this journey that we need to take uh, to go through these different types of electrification. Uh, and certainly, you know, when you look at big OEMs, um, VW recently invested 2 billion euros in Chinese companies focusing on different types of electric vehicles and on battery technology. GM announced plans to um, you know, spend 20 billion over the next five years in electrifying powertrains. Just last week, I think Audi announced uh, a project Artemis, as they're calling it, to accelerate for uh, the time to market for next generation electric vehicle platforms. And they've got a date of 2024. So I think, you know, yes, we can be skeptical maybe about the absolute numbers, but this trend, definitely we're seeing that. OEMs are not reducing investments in this space. You look at government regulations. I mean, this is a big driver as well, especially here in Europe. Um, you know, the European uh, Commission has got regulations to reduce CO2 emissions almost 38% from their 2021 values by 2030. Um, the UK recently announced a ban on all carbon fuel based vehicles by 2035. And a lot of other governments and countries are looking at uh, enacting regulations in this space. Um, coupled with the regulation, there's incentives as well now. Subsidies, right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, European OEMs um, uh, uh, in Europe, Germany recently announced it's going Last to be... Last week, right? Yeah, exactly. They're going to extend this consumer subsidy scheme. There's going to be tax breaks on electric vehicles. China recently announced while they'll be reducing the absolute value of the subsidy, um, they're going to extend the plan by another year to 2022. And again, we're seeing other governments are looking at this. And then I guess last but not least, consumer awareness, right? So we as consumers are becoming more and more climate aware, socially aware. There's a growing interest in, you know, this whole green movement and, and perhaps these you know, during COVID times where transportation is reduced, people are noticing the impact of, you know, um, less cars on the road and, and how this could translate to, 
you know, a world of electrified vehicles as well. So I think there's this kind of these multiple drivers. And just as a personal anecdote, you know, my daughter recently, teenage daughter said to me, Daddy, when you change your car next, are we going to get an electric vehicle? So I think this awareness is just generally growing now, even for us as consumers. You know, the um, it's both incentive and the regulation. Those those go hand in hand. We we have seen uh, a lot of uptick on that lately. I think uh, you're absolutely right about that. But you know, here here I am thinking about that. Um, the automotive industry is one of the industries that are hardest hit by the uh, pandemic uh, in terms of the uh, demand on the market and also the delay of starting up the production. We're not really hearing that much good news from the automotive industry, to be honest. So I've been thinking that uh, auto companies, when their resources are limited, must pick a lane. In this case, maybe that they are choosing EVs over AVs, you know, electric vehicle over autonomous vehicles. But you seem to believe that EVs and AV markets are actually growing hand in hand. So explain, what do you see of this dichotomy that are they choosing EVs over AVs or they go hand in hand? Can you explain, you know, sort of describe what you're thinking behind this? Yeah, yeah, great question. And and, and you're absolutely right. You know, this, this whole downturn has had a huge effect on the uh, automotive industry. You know, vehicle uh, production and sales this year are forecast to be about 20% down on last year. So we're looking at maybe... 71 72 million light vehicles sold from a high of you know 89 last year so absolutely there, there is a downturn it's a simultaneous supply side and demand side impact but if we take a step back you know the primary drivers are still there you know we've talked about the regulations the incentives consumer awareness uh, i gave examples of oems are still you know very actively investing so you know for, for me EV and AV actually go hand in hand because, you know, autonomous vehicles, uh, by their definition, you know, robo taxis, fleets, they will be on the road all the time, high levels of utilization. Having a combustion engine in an autonomous vehicle just doesn't make sense from a reliability, mechanical reliability perspective. So I see the work that the OEMs are doing in the EV space will be directly transferable to what they're doing on AVs. So I don't think it's a one or the other. Yes, autonomous vehicle deployment might be pushing out slightly, but all the great work happening in, in powertrain electrification absolutely is applicable to what will be needed for, for autonomous vehicles. So in other words, EVs uh, will be paving the way for the eventuality of AVs introduction. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So it's a key technology that's needed for yeah. AVs. Now, you know, this is another thing that kind of surprised me. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, uh, but uh, it was ARM rather than automotive company who commissioned this study, right? So I'm thinking that what can ARM do to get your customers ready to design chips necessary to get electrical vehicles going? Yeah, yeah, great. And, and, yeah. and, you know, I should have pointed out earlier on as well, you know, ARM technology is, of course, already found in automotive 
you know, applications today. And, you know, we all find our Cortex-A, R, M already shipping, shipping in vehicles. Um, and, you know, the design cycle for automotive can be seven to 10 years, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's quite a long life cycle that we have to think about. Uh, so we, we always try to project out, understand what could be those future trends and what technology do we need to be developing with that close discussion with our silicon partners, the tier ones, the OEMs, to make sure we meet these, these uh, needs of, of, of the market. And, and what we're seeing around powertrain um, is a general trend we're seeing in vehicles is this integration of multiple functions from discrete ECUs, electronic control units, into more centralized compute, whether it's a domain controller, a zonal controller, or the ultimate of a one all-powerful computer. And you know, as we see that, what that tells you is you need more compute capability. Um, as you start to integrate multiple functions, you might want different types of compute. We, we often talk about heterogeneous compute. So, you know, CPU or ML or uh, ISP or, or GPU. So what's the right type of um, uh, mix of compute? And then as you start to go to higher levels of functionality with this consolidation, now you're moving into this software defined world as well, right? So now you start to have to think about things like um, ecosystem for development. Um, and then on kind of on top of all of that, here we're talking about, you know, safety. You, you have to think about the implications of functional safety in, in powertrain. You know, the last thing we want is a, you know, either a, a hybrid powertrain or a full electric powertrain to have some kind of safety related fault. You get unintended acceleration or you get thermal runaway of the battery management system. These could all be quite, you know, fatal uh, effects. So we want to ensure functional safety is being considered. So when we take all of these into the mix and we're thinking about what do we do for our, our um, ecosystem and our partners, it's building functionally safe, heterogeneous compute to meet these kinds of demands that we're seeing around consolidation of functions. All right, very good chat. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. The study that Junko and Chet were just discussing is called The Second Dawn of Electrification. On our podcast page at www.eetimes.com, we have a link to the page where you can download a free copy. Power electronics is one of those sub-disciplines that even other electronics engineers sometimes consider to be a bit of a backwater. Until recently, that is. Many of the big megatrends in technology all rely on improvements in power electronics. We've already mentioned the electrification of vehicles. Excitement about handheld devices was sparked by smartphones long ago, but that's evolved into excitement about wearables and implantables, some of which have crazy power requirements. Data centers have changed the way the industry looks at how computing systems are powered. That's just a partial list of recent trends that have led to a re-examination of power supply and power consumption. The power segment of the IC industry has responded with an incredible burst of innovation. One of the major paths is the migration away from silicon, the foundational element of the electronics industry for the past half a century, toward new materials such as gallium nitride, GAN, and silicon carbide, SICK. For the past few years, Aspen Core has hosted the Power Up Expo, dedicated to power electronics. 
This year, during the great lockdown, the Power Up Expo is going virtual. Bolagiojo is AspenCore's global co-editor-in-chief and an organizer of the conference. Bola, tell us about Power Up this year. Hey, Brian, it's, uh, it's nice to talk with you. Um, of course, you know that power is a big part of the semiconductor industry. In fact, the entire electronics industry nowadays, uh, it is central to what most companies do nowadays. Um, if you talk about power in automotive, power in industrial, medical, uh, every single sector, it's this is where it is, you know, um, the management of power and, and semiconductor companies have stepped up to the plate. They've stepped up a huge, in a huge way. And uh, what Aspencore is doing is that we're giving voice to all of these companies to talk about all of the products and services that they have uh, in the power electronics uh, in the power semiconductor area. And uh, the, the, the schedule that we have, which was put together by my uh, colleague, Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio, uh, is really a very, very interesting one. So we're focusing on key segments of the semiconductor market. Uh, we're focusing on motor inverters. We're focusing on wide band gap semiconductors. All of these are the different areas by which, uh, where we expect to see uh, solid growth over the course of the next, uh, the next, I would say probably over the course of the next decade. Uh, every single one of these uh, is really, really, um, you know, the, the key segment that the industry is looking forward to expanding innovations and, uh, and product development. Now, um, the, the entire Power Up event is a virtual event and we expect to host uh, one of these every year. Starting with the 2020 event, AspenCore will also host um, a power-up event in 2021. And uh, so we are already soliciting and receiving uh, contributions from the industry for the 2021 uh, event. For the 2020 event, we have a wide group of companies that are participating. We have analog devices, uh, we have uh, Infineon, and uh, we have some of the key develop some of the key companies in this industry that are going to be uh, that are going to be involved. We have companies like Maxim. Maxim is uh, one of our major um, contributors uh, to the to the um, to this to this particular event. TI, of course, is going to be there. These are the key companies that are in this sector. And uh, of course, RO2, we have uh, an application engineer from RO. We have Kemet. Look, power is huge. And power will continue to be huge over the course of the next uh, next decade, I, I dare say. So, um, and what, what Aspenco is doing is that we are giving a voice to the companies that are involved in this sector and also for them to showcase the innovations uh, that they that they have um, in in this sector. Like I said, it's a virtual event, which means you don't even have to get out of your house. You don't have to go to an office, and certainly you don't need to travel. You just need your computer um, and uh, you know go online and engage with all of these. We have over. Uh, 1,200 registrants as at this moment, and every single one of them will be able to engage with the different exhibitors that we have. They'll also be able to uh, ask questions for the on the different presentations. We also we have keynote presentations. We have um, 
technical presentations we have discussion panels and and uh, also uh, you know on zoom you'll be able to ask questions you'll be able to engage uh, on virtual chats with the companies that are going to be there so this is like i said one of the the, the very first event that we're going to be having but we also plan additional events over the course of the next years okay so um looking forward to it myself and uh, you know if you haven't signed up power PowerUp-Expo.com. PowerUp-Expo.com. Looking forward to it. It's nice talking with you again, Brian. Have a great week. Thanks, Bola. You know, sometimes you don't even need to get in a word edgewise. I mentioned that power ICs are increasingly built not on silicon, but on other materials such as GAN and SIC. The key performance parameter that makes these materials superior to silicon is that they both have wider band gaps. Bola mentioned Maurizio De Paolo Emilio, the editor of our sister publication, Power Electronics News. To give you a taste of what you might hear during the Power Up Expo, we have a brief excerpt from an interview that Maurizio conducted with Bala Anup, Vice President of Engineering at Power Semiconductor Company, United Silicon Carbide. So tell me why GAN and silicon carbide, and for uh, for which markets we can find a lot of uh, application. And do you think that there is another material that could be a good competitor for uh, gallium nitride and uh, silicon carbide? Sure. So you know the basic thing about wide band gap semiconductors is that because of that uh, crystal structure, it has a very high critical field before breakdown happens. So this means if you're building a semiconductor device, you know, the voltage supporting region that you build, uh, it can be usually 10 times thinner than silicon if mm -hmm. you use GAN or silicon carbide. And you can put 10 times more electrons in there, you 10 times higher doping. So essentially, you know, you can roughly get 100 times lower resistance for making the same device. But there are many not non-ideal factors on top of that. Yeah. So this is the reason why people do it, because now you can make high voltage devices which are unipolar. So unlike IGBTs, you'll get the low on-state drop. You won't have a knee voltage. And you also won't have any stored charge. So you can now think about switching a lot faster. So that's the whole reason why people have gone after GAN and silicon. But they've evolved very differently. Silicon carbide is a lot older. And everybody makes vertical devices because you can make oxides on silicon carbide. Our company is, of course, using the JFET structure, mm -hmm. which, which has better mobility in the channel area. GAN has gone a different way. They have gone and decided to use an RF-like structure, which is called a HEMPT. It's a lateral device. Mm -hmm. And because you can make different semiconductors with good crystal matching, GAN with ALGAN on top of it, you can form a 2D electron gas. And this is another interesting way to make a power device. So these are both uh, playing a, a solid role in the market, especially mm -hmm. around where high-frequency power conversion is required. So these will compete GAN and silicon carbide compete in power supplies. But when it comes to uh, replacing IGBTs and inverters, I think silicon carbide uh, has a better shot because mm -hmm. it's simply because of power density. It is much better with a vertical device to do these high current, high power uh, modules and solutions. It can also use a lot of the packaging technology that was developed for IGBTs because yeah. it's a vertical. So these are, this is what's happening. And, you know, it's taken almost 20 years or more for silicon carbide to become mature enough, maybe almost 30 now, for silicon carbide to become mature enough to be accepted in the market. 
So even though people are working on ultra wideband gap, they're working on gallium mm-hmm. oxide, diamond, aluminum nitride, all kinds of things, you know, are showing some promise. Even vertical GAN is showing some promise. But these things will take a long time to mature. So I think if, even if they are coming, we are looking at another decade before they are good enough and cheap enough to compete with silicon carbide. Mm-hmm. Because silicon carbide now, the volume is picking up rapidly, costs are dropping rapidly because of volume and technology advance. So it's becoming harder and harder to compete with. And soon it'll be, in a few years' time, it'll be at eight inch. So it's a hard job for a new semiconductor to come in. Bala will be speaking on a panel on the second day of the expo, which is running live from June 16th to the 18th. Recorded content will be available later. Again, the website is powerup-expo.com. There's a link to the Power Up Expo webpage on the podcast webpage. The electronics industry has been relying heavily on three basic types of memory for years. Dynamic RAM, or DRAM, static RAM, or SRAM, and flash. In the early 2010s, Intel and its technology partner, Micron Technologies, began developing a new kind of memory that they called 3D Crosspoint. Early on, there was speculation they might end up with something that might even displace SRAM. Needless to say, that generated a lot of excitement. While Intel and Micron were working on 3D Crosspoint, other companies began exploring other novel types of memory. They include ferroelectric RAM, or FRAM, magnetoresistive RAM, or MRAM, phase change RAM, or PC RAM, and resistive RAM, called RERAM. By the way, EE Times contributing editor Gary Hilson writes about memory technology extensively for us, and he feels that 3D Crosspoint and PC RAM should probably be categorized together. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, Intel and Micron eventually went their separate ways. Both are producing variations of the technology they co-developed. Intel renamed its version of 3D Crosspoint Optane, and it began commercializing it about five years ago. When it hit the market, it was more expensive than anticipated, though. The market was disappointed. Optane was not going to be a serious challenge to SRAM or DRAM or Flash. But Intel stuck with it. Optane does have a combination of unique performance properties, and some developers have come to find those properties very useful indeed. Intel is now trying to distinguish Optane from other memory types by calling it persistent memory, which all leads to a discussion I recorded late last week with Christy Mann, the executive in charge of Intel's Optane business. With all these new memory types, including Optane, I wanted to sort out the nomenclature and where Optane actually fits into the market. So that's the first thing I asked Mann about. Okay, so I'll start by saying it's really similar to some aspects of both of those types of RAM, and it's also very different. Um, So I'll I'll basically say that persistent memory um, takes some of the low latency characteristics of DRAM the high media density characteristics of NAND, um, and then it marries that with a a feature we call persistence or non-volatility, and it brings all of that onto the memory bus. 
which makes it a really unique kind of technology. It opens up all sorts of doors to being able to optimize your data analytics capability by workload. Okay. So we have had non-volatile RAMs in the past. Um, I think ferroelectric RAM was non-volatile. Is that right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, but this is, uh, this is uh, a technology, Optane is more in line with the CMOS process. Is that right? It's really unlike anything that's out there. I can proudly say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can talk a little bit about the different types of non-volatile media. There's actually a lot of them. And I think they're all in a category of what we call emerging memories. And they're just at various levels of maturity and perhaps capability. Because, you know, some of them are very good at endurance. Some of them are very good at speed. Uh, Some of them are not very mature yet. They're not very far along. They're still in that research phase. Um, So they're just all over the map. All right. So I'm going to kind of jump ahead to the conversation we had before prior to this. Uh, There's phase change RAM, and some people think that Optane and phase change share a lot of characteristics or might even be in the same bucket. There's re-RAM is another uh, up-and-coming new uh, memory. Uh, There's FRAM, uh, ferroelectric RAM. Um, does Optane fit on that spectrum? Where does it fit? And how does it compare with some of these other new emerging tech, emerging yeah. memory technologies? Great question. Um, it is definitely in that spectrum of products. And uh, when we talk about, when I talk about Optane, what I'm really talking about is the Optane media itself. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the products are that we build around the Optane media But when I look at what the Optane Media does, I guess it's probably most similar to phase change material, and yet it's not. Uh, It is just completely unique. Um, And it has some of the best low latency characteristics out of the bunch. Um, You know, it's much more similar to DRAM from that aspect. It is also natively persistent uh, so that you get that non-volatility by default. Now, there are other modes that you can run it in. You know, you can run it like memory where it's byte addressable and volatile. You can run it where it's byte addressable and persistent. You can run it in block mode uh, and be persistent. So there's, there's many, many different flexible ways you can use it to get that best blend of endurance, performance, volatility, um, and, and cost and capacity. I throw all that in there, too, because these all have variations. You know, uh, I didn't ask this the last time around, but I'm interested. Uh, if you uh, can, you mix and match within the same system. So, if you need uh, different, you know, multiple different memory types with different characteristics, like you just mentioned, can you use Optane in a single system to to represent all of those different types of of memories? Right. That's a great question. Uh, so I'll start by saying it's not really always well understood that in a server architecture, you have to have both DRAM and persistent memory in, with Intel's solution. You have to have some of both. And a lot of people don't understand that. And then if you wanted to run, for example, STTM RAM or, you know, PCM RAM, you know, those are different medias. You would, that's a completely different product. So you can't really mix and match it with uh, our solution. Right. But can you mix and match like uh, two Optane media, put them together and use one as one type of memory with, you know, uh, ah. you know low latency re- uh, uh, of characteristics and, and use the other as, you know, you know, and rely on that for other 
characteristics? Right. That's that's an interesting question. I, I don't get asked that one a lot, but um, you know, absolutely. In this first generation of our product, we actually have a functionality called mixed mode, uh, where you can partition part of the DIM to run in um, AppDirect and part of it in memory mode. But but in reality, I think the most traditional use case is to use the DRAM as the cache because it is so fast. Um, and then use the if you if you need persistence um, or what we call AppDirect, uh, that's where they use the persistent memory. But yeah, that is a capability. Interesting. Um, and uh, my understanding from what we were discussing earlier is that um, using Optane uh, comes within an environment of other uh, 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 other sub uh, elements, including the DIM. Uh, including the software, the controller as well. Can you go over how that works? Yeah. So the the one unique thing I think about our product is that it really is a full solution. It is not just a DIM. It's not just a media chip. Um, it is deeply integrated into the platform architecture. So uh, part of the part of the memory controller actually lives in the Xeon processor. Part of it lives on the memory DIM. And we do that so that we can maximize the data placement, um, either if it's running in memory mode, which is transparent to the software application, or if it's running in our app direct mode, where control of the data placement is done by the application. So it's an amazingly complex um, ecosystem of technology just within our solution or our architecture. I haven't even mentioned the fact that you know we run on a different protocol. We, our protocol is called DDRT. Um, there is a similar protocol developing in the industry called NVDMP, but it basically allows asynchronous communication with variances in read and write capability. So it's very complex, and that's all pulled together in the Intel architecture, and it just works. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. That's great. Is it to Intel's advantage to eventually have uh, Optane work with, with other processors or other processor types? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I actually think about uh, often uh, as we're planning out our five-year plan. We have to keep an eye on what's happening in the industry. And we see the emergence of um, new CPU architecture protocols like CXL, C6, fabric protocols like Xenand. Um, we see these new medias developing. Um, there are even new companies you know, developing around persistent memory um, which is, is super exciting to watch and see because everybody's looking for how they take advantage of these unique capabilities. Um, so definitely it is, it is a, a question of what do our customers want and need, and that's how we'll reflect our roadmap over the coming years. So there are a lot of different uh, new emerging uh, memories. Uh, I mentioned RERAM earlier. I mentioned FRAM earlier. Um, uh, there are new emerging um, architectures where where processor companies are drawing um, uh, blocks of of memory on board their processors or, or putting them together in in uh, multi chip modules or in a chiplet kind of an approach. Um, are these are these likely to be competitive with the Optane approach? Uh, do they all map to uh, specific types of workloads and and may or may not overlap. How how do we expect that to see the the market developing from that point of view? 
Yeah, that's a complex question. Uh, so I'll try to give a simple answer to a complex question. I, I think that all of these emerging memory technologies, whether it's software, protocol, architecture, hardware-based, um, all of them have benefits that they bring, and they are at varying levels of maturity, varying levels of customer adoption or interest. Uh, so I love being in this space because it feels like the Wild West of, of a new beginning. It, it's just amazing. And so we just have to, we have to keep an eye on where are these trends heading and really listen closely to our customers for what they want, because we still have the ability to pivot. I think that's the most amazing thing is that with the flexibility that we provide in our basic architecture, there are just crazy new things that people are going to figure out uh, how to do it with the technology. And I've seen proposals from combining it with accelerators um, to changing where the memory lives. What if you don't have storage in your system at all? I mean, there are just lots of um, ideas and concepts and changes coming. Right. Um, the types of workloads uh, you had mentioned um, that Optane is is really uh, really apt uh, for uh, include um, you know big databases with huge data sets, right? Um, and, and, uh, can you give us an example of, uh, maybe one of your partners that, uh, that has used Optane and, and really figured out how to, to, you know, get the, the most value out of it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can also talk to you a little bit about the history of where we thought things were going to play versus where we ended up. Um, absolutely. Yes, please. Yeah. It, it's kind of a, a neat story. It's been fun to watch this. Um, you know, when we started, we were pretty sure that we would uh, target in-memory database and analytics. You know, those, those were true. Um, we also had visions of infrastructure as a service and driving infrastructure consolidation, um, HCI compute, HPC, and, you know, content delivery with the telcos. You know, we had a lot of um, visions Ambitions. of what we thought it <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah. ambitious. You were going to take over the world, weren't you? Yeah, we were going to have world <laughs> domination in a week. <laughs> and, you know, tomorrow would be okay with me, but, you know, yeah. I think it's going to take a little longer. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and so it's been fun to watch, you know, where are we really seeing the, the, the adoption, the excitement? And I'll say that, you know, the first thing I always come back to is databases underpin 85% of the enterprises in the world. We all have massive databases. Um, and there's a race now to be the, the first person to get insights from that data. Um, I like to use the analogy that the data rush of the 2020s is like the 1800s gold rush. You know, any company that is trying to do something to get insights from data real time, we call that real time analytics. They need a database to underpin it. And, you know, those two things go together brilliantly. So, you know, a couple of examples, where are we seeing uptake in this? I would say extreme interest in the financial services segment. And you can imagine that for credit card fraud detection or um, real-time trading, you know, the it is very valuable to have faster insights from your data. And a, a fun one that I like to share is uh, video recommendation has been, uh, I've had multiple cloud service providers or uh, customers uh, use it for video recommendation. So if you have kids, everybody in America has heard of TikTok. It's actually an Asian company. Um, but as the users are downloading and watching these quick videos, there's artificial intelligence going in in the background to decide what next video to recommend to that user. 
And that's valuable because if you can personalize what you recommend, you can drive people to see certain things and then you can monetize that. So um, uh, TikTok is, you know, one of my favorite examples of video recommendation, but there's video surveillance. There's just a lot of applications where you need real-time analytics. All right. Did we cover everything already? (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is why now? Nobody ever had a persistent memory problem. Are you sure you're not just a a product looking for a problem? And um, I would say that this is uh, an exciting time to be in the emerging memory space. Uh, because there are tr- macro trends that are driving a lot of demand for a technology like this. And I would say that the first one is that uh, most large enterprises are really embarking on their own digital transformation journey, where they use artificial intelligence to gain their business insights, and everything is going digital in their enterprise. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge uh, factor. The other is that from all the way from the compute architecture, which is, is moving towards chiplet-based uh, designs and perhaps more cores, you have to have memory to service those cores. And so the, the, the growth of demand for memory is, is almost exponential. Every prediction that we show shows that the number of systems that are going to have greater than half a terabyte is going to double um, over the next three years. So it's, it's just very interesting that these trends are all coming together and all of a sudden you have this product that can help fill that gap between storage and memory. And uh, it's, it's really shaping up to be powerful. All right. Well, Christy, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And here we find ourselves at the point in this podcast where we like to note the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. This week, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to June 7th, 1975, the day Sony introduced the Betamax video cassette player and recorder. In retrospect, one of the most consequential failures in electronics history. The Betamax essentially created the means for time shifting. Now, the desire to be able to watch what you wanted to watch when you wanted to watch it profoundly affected the broadcast TV industry, the film industry, the theater industry, and the broadband industry. It created, then destroyed, the video rental industry. The ability to record when you weren't at home didn't get added until several years after video cassette recorders were introduced. Back in 1975, if you wanted to see a TV show, The Jeffersons or MASH or Gunsmoke or Kojak, or any of the approximately 100 shows running on network TV at the time, you had to be sitting in front of your television set when your show was scheduled to be broadcast. Otherwise, you missed it. You wouldn't get another chance to see any given episode again until it was rerun several months later. I know. I know. It was barbaric. Those of us who remember those days carry those scars with us forever. Anyway, time shifting. Sony got sued by an entertainment industry that did not want people to be able to record content. Sony won that case in 1984, but it couldn't really rejoice. JVC had introduced the rival VHS player way back in 1976, and by 1981 was clearly outselling the Betamax. By the time Betamax had won its court case, it was already sliding into market irrelevance. Sony produced the last Betamax recorder in 2002, 
and the last Betamax tape in 2016. By 2016, though, the concept of time shifting that Betamax had introduced 40 years earlier had taken over the world. Billions of people all over the world can now watch just about anything they want to watch, whenever they want to watch it, and watch it pretty much wherever they want to watch it, provided they have a smartphone. How's that for a failure? So that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending June 12th. Thanks for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms. But if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and other multimedia sometimes. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts or go straight to eetimes.com slash podcasts. This podcast was produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.